This is Unstructured. Welcome to another episode of the Unstructured Podcast. Today's guest, Robert Forto, is a musher. He drives dogs. Anyway, there were some technical issues with uh, this podcast, as you might be able to pick up in the flow of this recording. So don't mind the mistakes and keep on trucking. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Instructor. Today, I have a rather unique guest. His skill set is something that I'd heard of, but I have no real knowledge of. He is a musher. Now, Robert Fordo, what exactly is a musher? Well, dog mushing is an ancient sport where you're running behind a sled of, of dog team, probably, I don't know, anywhere from 6, 8, 10, 12, 14 dogs out in front of you. Very similar to what many people have seen on movies like Iron Will or Snow Dogs or something like that. Okay. There's... Now, you currently live in Alaska? Yes. Fantastic place uh, for uh, snow dogs, I imagine. Of course. Now, were you always in Alaska? No, we've been up here since August 2010. We moved up here from the Denver, Colorado area, and I was a military brat, so I got around the country a little bit. Oh, okay. So where did you grow up? I grew up mainly on the East Coast, graduated high school from Woodbridge, Virginia, just outside of D.C. Cool. And then what took you west? Well, uh, college first off, I went to school at Portland State University in Oregon, and then I met my soon-to-be wife. Uh, She was asking some questions on a chat room way back in the day about uh, how to teach her dog how to pull, and she was living in Colorado at the time, and I thought, what better than to uh, visit the Mile High? Okay, so from what you're telling me right now, you went from high school into mushing. Pretty much. I was going to go to vet school, and, and I learned very quickly I didn't want to be stuck in a vet office. So I started uh, dog training in the parks of Oregon in 1994. I pretty much had a had a dog leash and a, and a stack of business cards and started doing some dog training. And the next thing you know, I ended up with a couple of Siberians, Siberian Huskies, that is. Those turned into four. Those turned into eight. And pretty soon I had a team of sled dogs. Okay, so what what brought you into um, dog training to begin with? Was it just uh, obedience training, or yep, just basic obedience training? I was one of the first people that was offering the AKC Canine Good Citizen class way back in the early 90s and just sort of took off you know as a a poor college student i didn't have anything else going on except going to school and i was trying to be in a rock band at the same time but had to be able to put some food on the table and some beer in the fridge as they say and uh uh, dog training started to uh, look pretty promising and it ended up becoming a career what did you play In, in 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 music yeah, yeah, I play just about everything. I play bass, a little bit of drums, quite a bit of guitar. Do you still? Ah, uh, dabble here and there. Oh, cool, cool. We may revisit that. So, what exactly goes into um, dog training itself, and what is a good citizen? A canine good citizen is a course offered by the American Kennel Club. It's pretty much uh, a way to evaluate a dog to be a good pet dog in public and in your home. It's it's uh, teaching your dog how to be, you know, 
good manners, whether you're going to hang out at Starbucks and, and grab a coffee on the patio or having vest, uh, excuse me, um, uh, guests and things come over to the house. You have a, a very well-trained dog. And that's what I started with, and that, that worked pretty well. And then I got into some more advanced type training courses. I went to school for a summer to be a certified dog trainer, which was pretty new at the time in the early 90s. And then we offered uh, things like um, advanced obedience and competition obedience and a little bit of protection training, personal protection, like with the bite suits and all that sort of stuff. And and I just started honing my skills. And by the time I moved to Denver, we had opened up a pretty full-fledged facility with uh, kennels in the back and training rooms in the front and, you know, uh, probably a million dogs in the Denver metro area as clients. And it was just a, a good way to earn a living. So um, with the training that you did, are a lot of these courses currently available? Uh, for for the trainers or for the dogs? For the dogs and trainers, is this standard practice to this day, or is that something that you did in the 90s? Yes, uh, we pretty much all of the courses that were taught then is just uh, compounded on what you know the new knowledge in dog training is today. Back in the early days, uh, they were still using a lot of pinch collars and shock collars and that sort of thing, and and we went a little bit more of a balanced approach, a little bit more science based. Uh, dog training approach where we're using the behavior of the dog versus a bunch of tools. You know, you don't need to run around with a tool belt to, to train your pet Labrador. So we based uh, sort of our training philosophies on that sci- sort of scientific approach. And it seemed to work a little bit better than, you know, trying to teach everybody else how to use a bunch of other things just to get their dog to sit or down. Can you um, break in these or, or how you would go about it? Because a lot of us are clueless. Uh, well, first off, uh, most of dog training is based on operant conditioning, meaning if there is a, a an activity that you're looking for, uh, they're either going to be rewarded or punished. And punishment doesn't mean scolding or hit or anything like that. It means that reinforcer is taken away. So, for example, if you have a pet dog that wants to, that you want to do a sit stay when somebody knocks on your door, uh, you would uh, teach them first, obviously, how to sit and reward them and then you would teach them how to sit at the door and then reward them and then you reward uh, a treat a pet a good dog whatever using as positive reinforcement and then uh, you're building on that activity so then by the time they've they've got the sit down they've got the sitting at the door down they've got the sitting at uh, at the door when somebody's knocking and then of course sitting uh, when somebody knocks and then somebody comes into the house, all of those sort of string of activities is is looking forward to that change of behavior, which is just that basic sit stay when somebody comes to the door to to, to you know to come over to your house for a visit. So it's modular. Yes. Okay. Now, can you give me a short synopsis of each type of class you d- mentioned earlier? Uh, in today's um, dog training, a lot of things that we do now is just sort of your basic training. So that's sit down, stay, come, wait, um, good loose leash walking, no jumping, no barking, that sort of thing. That's just your basic pet behavior is what we're looking for. Then we have some more advanced stuff where you're doing things off leash and in different scenarios, whether you're in public or at the dog park or anything like that. 
we do do some per- personal protection training for um, for a very few clients. We don't do a lot of that because it can uh, really open up a can of worms if you aren't careful. So we offer uh, offensive um, protection training where the dog is is very similar to like a canine cop dog, that sort of thing. And then we have a defensive threat dog, which is sort of your home protection type dog. So if somebody were to break in and and uh, you weren't home and you had a, a you know quote unquote guard dog is what most people think uh, you would use that type of dog for. Then we do all sorts of sports. We've worked with agility and confirmation or excuse me competition obedience and dock diving and and of course dog mushing. Quick question on the uh, guard dog. Yes, is it true that in Germany they train their dogs in reverse of the U.S. where we train them here to keep a an intruder out the germans train them to let them in and keep them there you know i've heard that before we we of course use the the other other side of the coin as you mentioned sort of in reverse of of your reverse where we're trying to exclude the intruder you know i haven't used that method before i guess that's a good method and in today's world where everybody has an alarm on their house and that sort of thing if if that dog can tie down the person so to speak uh while the police arrive, I think that's a good thing. Then they can't get away. Okay. But, of course, you'd worry about the dog being in danger. Right. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays everybody is uh, is uh, packing a gun and all sorts of things. You never know what's happening. Right. I was just curious because that was something I heard. Right. Okay. So the sport training, dock diving, things like that. Right. Can you elaborate? Oh, well, dock diving, you've prob- people who are listening have probably seen it on TV. It's been pretty popular on, on ESPN and those other sports types channels. It's where a dog is um, on a dock and, and they have a pool in front, of, in front of them. And the goal is to have your dog jump as far as possible on the dock. So you use some type of, of lure, whether it's a tennis ball or you know a, a stuffed animal or something like that, where you're teaching your dog to jump further and further and further away from the dock and uh points are won and you know competitions are won by the dogs that can jump the furthest from the dock and of course there are dogs that that excel at this much better than others all of the retrievers and the labradors and you know any of those uh hunting type dogs that people are, can associate with with uh you know high ball drive or high high uh prey drive that sort of thing is uh dogs that ex- that uh, perform pretty well with that the na- uh, natural swimmers, sort of natural swimmers, yes. Okay, cool. And what what is another type of training? You listed like five items. Uh, agility training. Again, most people have probably seen that on TV. That's where a dog is running through an obstacle course. They have all sorts of jumps and tunnels and weaves and all that sort of thing. That's another really popular activity and. Those um, dogs that work well in that sport are, are typically the herding type dogs. So you have your border collies and your Australian shepherds and that sort of thing. They really do well in that type of sport. They're good with frisbee catching too. I mean. Yes, that's that's another sport. I've never gotten involved with that one, but uh, uh, they have uh, frisbee sports and another sport called fly ball, which is sort of like fetch from a. Um, uh, sort of a post type thing where a dog runs up and and, and uh, pounces their paws on this podium and it shoots a ball out and and they go chase after it. That's another competitive sport with AKC and it's uh, becoming pretty popular. That's cool. So now while you were taking up dog training, did you finish out school? 
Yes, I did. I ended up finishing with uh, a bachelor's in veterinary science. And like I said, I just didn't want to be stuck inside all the time. And that's about the same time I was getting involved with sled dogs. And I ended up uh, following that passion where I'd spend most, most of my time outside versus in. Now, a, a bachelor in veterinary science, is that Sort of like a pre- roughly the equivalent of an RN to a. Uh, it would a be more, It would be more like a a pre med degree, you know, for somebody that's going on to 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 medical school or something like that. Just a real heavy science based uh, bachelor type program uh, that that prepares somebody to move on to that more advanced type study uh, later on. Okay, I would imagine it would be handy for sledding. Oh yeah, I've used uh, those skills many a times over the years. Okay, we'll definitely visit that. Now, you kind of breezed by, and we call it bearing the lead, but um, you said, I had two Hiberian, Siberian Huskies, and then it was four, and then it was eight. Or, let's back up a minute. Okay. How did you stumble into two, a couple Siberian Huskies? Pretty interesting story. I was, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I was going to school in, in Portland, Oregon, and I was pretty heavy in the competition scene at that point with the American Kennel Club, so I was going to a lot of trials around the country and that sort of thing and and there was an ad in in some type of publication probably a dog magazine or something i mean you want to talk about nerdy uh person in college reading a dog magazine that's about it's about as nerdy as you can get but uh there was an ad for some working siberians and they were located in georgia so i jumped in my little dots in 280z and pretty much did a beeline from from oregon to georgia in in pretty much a day and a half or so and and i arrived at this uh, kennel in the uh, mountains of Georgia and she had a pack of Siberian Huskies and she said I understand you're interested in one of my pups and I said yes of course and she had this this cart it kind of looked like a kind of like a dune buggy without a motor in it and we sat down in it and and we had a bunch of dogs hooked up to the front of it and and I tell you what, uh, she released the brake and we took off down the trail and through the through the woods there. And I was immediately hooked. I left the the kennel with with two dogs. I ended up calling them Rutger and Reich, and they were sort of the foundation of our kennel in the early days. And as as a dog musher, you can't do much with two. So I started off relatively small. As I said, two became four. And then I just started adding a dog or two whenever uh, the property uh, space would allow or my budget would allow, whatever I had in the pocketbook, so to speak. And uh, before too long, I had a, a, a gaggle of sled dogs in the yard. And, and I thought I was going to be the next uh, Iditarod champion. I see now what made you say, oh, there's two Siberian Huskies in Georgia? You know, it was just being young, being foolish, you know, chasing after something that uh, that probably wasn't the best idea at the time. But uh, what was your idea, though? Because you hadn't been on a sled. You know, I really didn't have an idea at that time. I thought, well, if I get again, I thought I was just going to go down there and pick up one pup. And I was going to bring that pup back. And, and for most folks that know, uh, Portland, Oregon is a relatively moderate climate. So there's not a lot of snow or anything there. Sure. And I ended up uh, bringing home two little pups because I probably at the time thought I couldn't choose between one or the other. So I ended up t- taking both of them. And my goal at that time was just to do competition obedience with them and, and to be in the show ring and you know do that sort of thing. Be a show type dog, not necessarily an athletic type dog. And But why them? 
I've always I've always been passionate about Siberians. I got my first Siberian when I was 17, uh, and at this time, I guess I was 20, 23, 24 or so. So it had been a while, but that was sort of the breed of choice. You know, you kind of uh, get okay. the dog that you grew up with. Okay, you missed that part. I guess. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. I just, usually when you drive across the country for a random dog, not just because you look cute on TV. Right. And, and, you know, I think there was some adventure to that, you know, that that first big road trip as as an adult. You know, you say, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can jump in my little car and, you know, just sort of throw everything to the wind and fly down the highway. I'm, I'm sure you've done that a time or two. Yeah, usually I have to go somewhere. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I, I understand. It. Right. Was it fun? Of course. Well, awesome. Then. Okay, so now... You brought them back to Oregon. Yes. Correct? Yes. Okay. And while you're in Oregon, you were collecting more Siberians. Well, there, there's another little piece to the story there, Eric. Uh, about the time that I was finishing up school, my grandfather had recently passed away, and he had a little uh, cabin on a lake, you know, sort of the prototypical Minnesota cabin, and he left that to me when he passed away. So again, throwing everything to the wind, I thought, well, might as well move to to Minnesota, and I, I um, you know, packed up all of my belongings, so to speak, after school, moved to Minnesota, and at that point, not only did the property afford me the ability to have sled dogs, but also the weather and the trail access and and all that sort of thing. Uh, allowed me to to really pursue that passion in high gear and i was there for for quite a while i guess uh six or seven years uh racing uh mid-distance races throughout the upper midwest and you know uh, over towards uh south dakota north dakota the, you know sort of the the rocky mountain region at that point and you know again i had those those thoughts of of doing iditarod i'm sure we'll talk about iditarod in a little while but, uh, you know, as, as you're growing up, you have to figure out how you're going to earn a living. And and I was still doing dog training at that point. And, uh, you know, and then about, uh, you know, the late 1990s or so, that was when I met my future wife. Are there a lot of sledding competitions in the country? Uh, there's quite a few. There's, there's of course, the, the, the big boys in mushing, the Iditarod and the Yukon Quest, which are the, sure. the largest races. And then there are mid-distance races all over the country, in particular, of course, where there's snow, there's um, there's races up in New England. Uh, sort of modern dog training in the United States started in New England, so there's quite a few races there. Then all throughout the the upper Midwest, so in Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana is a big mushing hotbed. Uh, sort of the Cascades area of Washington, there's quite a few races, and then down into Colorado and in, in the mountains where it's. Uh, a little bit more uh, lowland, I guess. You know, there's a little bit more trails, not so much in the the ski resort type areas. That's wild. That the whole industry, I guess, that I know nothing about, but there's a lot of them out there. Of course, yes. Well, that's that's cool. Okay, so now you met your wife, from my understand, online because she had a question. Yes, you know, back in the day, in the late '90s, chat rooms were big, and it's funny that we're talking on a chat room right now. But it was on a Yahoo chat room, and it was a Saturday afternoon. And uh, at the time, she um, was a, a young single mom, and she posted a question in the chat room asking how she could teach her Malamute how to pull a sled, how to pull her kids in in a, in a sled. She was living in the mountains outside of Denver. 
And uh, I answered the question, and you know, one thing came to another. We started talking, and and then we started chatting online, and those became phone calls. And you know how it sort of goes. We developed a, a relationship, and uh, we were uh, making uh, making plans to meet up. And I I flew up and, and met her and the family, and and uh, eventually moved out to Colorado. Nice. And you slipped in another thing I wanted to talk about. She had a malamute. Yes. And from what I understand, Malamutes are another fine sledding breed. Yes, they are. They are a little bit different than your your typical sled dog. They are more freighting type dogs, so they they pull a lot of weight uh, at a relatively slow speed. So think a little bit more of of the horse of the dog world versus like a Siberian that's going to give a little bit more uh, stamina and speed. Okay, and where would the wolf fall? because i know some are mixes yeah uh, um you know wolves are you know there are some wolf hybrids out there that uh is definitely more dog than there is wolf but there's a lot of timidity in in a wolf so they're they don't fit very well into a working type environment where they're working with humans really right okay that's fascinating now, is there another breed that I'm missing? Uh, nowadays, almost everybody, and that, that's pretty much what we have gone to now, is the Alaskan Husky, which is pretty much a Heinz 57 type sled dog. So there's a little bit of Husky in there. There may be some uh, Greyhound, maybe some Pointer, maybe some, uh, maybe even a little German Shepherd there. It all depends on what you're looking for. Our dogs have that typical husky look so you know the pointed the pointed ears and the fluffy tail and that sort of thing but nowadays sled dogs come in every variety everything from the short coats and long legs to the big husky type dogs like we use okay so they maybe are i i do running Mm -hmm. and i'm interested in ultra running and my dad raced horse so i'm wondering if different mixes are for different races like for a short distance race, maybe you prefer one type of dog versus the Iditarod. Yes, that, that, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, more of that pointer type, that long, lanky, lanky, flop, floppy, heared, short coat type dog. Uh, very. If if folks that are listening and they they are understanding what a German German short haired pointer looks like, that is your typical sprint dog. And sprint racing is sort of a, another class of of dog mushing. So you have sprint sprint racing, which is short runs, and you have mid distance races, which is anywhere. Now, what, from, what, what would that distance be? Uh, typically it is there it's, it's based in classes. So typically however many dogs you have on your team is how many, how many miles you're running in a day. So if you have a six dog team, you're running six mile heats. If you have an eight dog team, you're running eight mile heats. Or if you have an open team, it means you're running in an open class where you could run 25, 30 miles in a, in a day. Now, is it a multi-day race every time? Yes, most sprint races are two or three days. Typically, they're on the weekends. It is the ultimate uh, weekend warrior type mushing uh, kennel where you can literally pack up the family and, and go to a race on, on Saturday morning, sleep in your own bed at night, and uh, do it again on Sunday and be back home and, and at your real job, so to speak, in, uh, in, on Monday morning. 
Nice. So yes. It's built for glamping. It it is built for glamping, and and uh, you know a lot of people take RVs and things to that because you don't have you don't have a team of of twelve or fourteen or sixteen dogs that you have to haul around. You have maybe four dogs which you can fit in the back of an RV in in, in dog crates or whatever you're looking to do. Or you know I've seen uh, Subarus going down the highway with the sled lashed to the top and just a couple of crates <laughs> in the in the back. Uh, you know, and a couple kids in the car seat so it's definitely a little bit uh, less intense so to say than than uh, a long distance mushing team nice and of course it's probably a lot like horses there's money in it yes and sprint racing uh you can win money every weekend whereas in a a distance race you have to um you know you're training for maybe one or two races a year and you know your entire uh, paycheck per se can come just on how well you do in that one race. Whereas in sprint racing, it can, you can, uh, you know, ebb and flow and, and win and lose as you go through the season. I mean, it's a rich person sport. It, it, everything's a rich person sport. I think, you know, I tell, <laughs> I tell my wife all the time, if we didn't have uh, sled dogs, we could probably have a sailboat and, and, and a prop plane in the backyard. Maybe. And back to that. So you moved to, Denver. Yes. With the wife. Yes. And started racing there or training dogs together? We were doing a little bit of both. Uh, her kids were still relatively young at the po- at that point. I think uh, our oldest was eight and our youngest was just turning three. So we were doing the sprint thing, as we were just talking about. Uh, we didn't have that many dogs at that point in time. So we were... Um, you know, going on the weekends and 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 racing and and doing pretty well with with purebred dogs, which is a, again a different class. We were racing on the weekends and and unfortunately we were taking the kids out of school, which was not uh, uh, not very exciting for the teachers at that point. There wasn't any homeschooling or anything like there is today. So you know, we we stayed in mushing as long as we possibly could. And we got out of it for quite a while, and we, you know, because it just wasn't conducive to our family. I, of course, had to become uh, had to become an adult at some point, and that was about the time where where I realized it's time to to settle some roots. and And we opened up a dog training center in Denver, as I mentioned before, and and uh, did very well with that. And then, the, sort of, the next chapter of the story is is uh, I I came up to Iditarod or to Alaska for Iditarod and. Helped out a friend of mine, and before you know it, we were moving to Alaska. Okay, so backing up, um, your day job was running a dog training center. Yes. And I'm guessing then to go to Alaska, you sold it? Well, that's that's an interesting part of the story. Um, uh, I came up here for Iditarod uh, in March of 2010. Uh, I'd met a friend sort of in the mushing world before, uh, and we became pretty close. And he said, hey, if you ever come up to Alaska, look me up and, you know, you can help me out with the start and, you know, do all this sort of stuff. And we were staying at a mutual friend's of ours house, and he happened to be a realtor. And as I was packing up to leave, his name was Dave. I said, Dave, uh, if you ever get a, a property that looks good for dog mushing, you know, give me a call, you know, sort of in passing as I was heading off to the airport. And, and by June, a realtor being a realtor does not uh, miss an opportunity for a hookup. Uh, he, by June, he had already found a place. And he said, as again, as realtors do, this is the perfect place for you, Robert. You need to get up here and you need to act quick. 
And uh, we pretty much bought our place sight unseen. Ooh. But I want to back up. Okay. You were you were helping somebody with Iditarod. Yes. I'm going to keep drawing parallels to ultra running because I don't have any other idea. Okay. When you're helping somebody, like in a ultra running, you may be pacing them, you may be changing equipment, things like that. What exactly do you do to help somebody with Iditarod? In long-distance mushing, uh, it, it's almost like NASCAR. You have your driver, you know, you have your Dale Earnhardt Jr. or your Richard Petty or somebody like that who gets, you know, sort of the glory, I guess, of the sport. And then you have all of the people that work behind the scenes, pit and, the pit crew. And in Iditarod, uh, the Iditarod is, is a 1,000-mile race that starts up here every March and runs from Anchorage, Alaska to Nome. And you're allowed to have help during those first couple of days at the ceremonial start in Anchorage and the restart up here in Willow. And he needed that person to be that pit crew or that handler. And I, what is help? Well, you're, you're helping uh, hook up the dogs to the line. You're helping with the feeding. You're helping with the last minute prep. Uh, you're driving the, the truck from, from the, uh, from the start back to, to where you pick them up. You're doing all of those behind the scenes things while the dog musher is out on that out on the trail for the first couple of days and of course for me it was just an excuse to come to alaska and see all that alaska had to offer so i um i came up and was was his quick pit crew for for the weekend and uh you know hung out in alaska and fell in love with with the state and and of course i had that uh that mushing background in, in my pocket so i thought it was an opportunity to come out and see what was up here in in the great white north okay now keep in mind this is an audience that is clueless right. about dogs. Right. Speaking of myself specifically, so I really want details. Okay. I want to know driving the truck. What does that mean? Well, Under the line. What does that mean? Okay. We uh, can... A lot of this stuff. Paint me a nice picture because I really want to understand the sport. Okay, so I will use my kennel as an example, but for what I was doing as the pit crew. So up here in Willow, which is arguably the dog mushing capital of the world, it's where the Iditarod starts. Here in our neighborhood, I think we have 10 residents and probably 150, 200 dogs right here in our neighborhood. Uh, down in our kennel, we have 40 sled dogs uh, in our in our uh, on our property here, uh, ranging in age from just a week old. We had our uh, our last litter as dog mushers here just a week ago, and we have them all the way up to probably 13 or 14 years old here. And uh, those dogs, um, they are the they're broken down into teams. So we right now we're running mid distance races and expeditions where we take people out on expeditions with our dog team. So with our dogs, we run teams of 10 or 12 dogs. So um, when you're hooking them up to the line, they're typically hooked up in pairs. So you have your lead dogs, which are the dogs that are listening to the commands. And then you sort of have it set up like a football team. You have uh, your swing dogs, which are kind of the, the, the role players. They're the sort of the uh, wide receivers of, of the of the dog team world. They're the ones that are that are making the plays. And then you have a bunch of team dogs. Those are the dogs that are, you know, sort of the offensive and defensive linemen 
Uh, How many dogs total again? We run 10 or 12 dog teams. So you'll have... Does it matter? Uh, the more dogs, the more power. So depending on what you're doing, how much you're hauling, how far you're going, uh, you can uh, add or subtract dogs. But and that's uh, allowed? It's allowed, yes. Uh, well, race uh, the races dictate how many dogs you can have. So most mid-distance races cap the dogs at 12 dogs. Most of the long-distance races cap them at 16. So 16 dogs, Eric, is about uh, 45 feet in front of you. So that's a pretty good distance between where you're standing on the sled to the tip of the nose of a lead dog. So just How much think, distance between dogs? Uh, about 8 feet plus, plus the sled plus the dog. So it's about 45 feet. Do they change roles as they go? Uh, we do train them to change roles. The lead dogs are, are sort of the... I don't know. A lot of people say they're the smartest dogs of of the of the of the team, but that's not necessarily so. They're the ones that are most apt to be uh, amenable to taking commands. So, thinking about uh, you know your own pet dog, does your dog listen to you well? Uh, maybe that is uh, uh, what you're looking for in a lead dog. And then at the very back of the team, right in front of your sled, we have wheel dogs. And those are uh, the the biggest dogs typically in the team. They're the big brutes of the team. And, you know, they're the muscle behind the team. So think about... A, I was going to ask who takes the most weight. Yeah, it's it's those, it's those uh, wheel dogs. And those are the kind of goofy jocks in the team if you're thinking about other sports. <laughs> you, know, they're the, you know, the big goofy offensive lineman or the center or whatever if you're thinking about football, whereas, you know, the glory boys like the Tom Brady's or the, you know, the Drew Brees or whoever, you know, those would be your lead dogs. Is that where you would mix up the breeds possibly? Like a Malamute might be a, a power dog and, uh, you know, some, it can be something else. Some people do mix uh, the, the different breeds, but nowadays everything is so specialized. As I mentioned, most, almost all of our dogs now are the Alaskan Husky, which is that, mixed breed of of something it's something with a a husky so traditions though like this is a wheel dog family uh lead dog family not necessarily it's it's more based on size than anything you know just like in in your typical um you know if you you have kids you might have a a child that's relatively small and you have another one maybe uh larger so that child may end up play, paying, playing uh, quarterback, whereas the larger child may not be as agile or as fast or quick on his feet. So he may be, you know, a defensive lineman or a linebacker or something like that. Okay. Uh, and then going back to what we're doing with the, with the dogs, you had mentioned driving them around. Uh, so we have, um, we have a Toyota, what we have in our kennels, we have a Toyota Tundra, which we built a special box for the back. And it's a, a box with, with little doors where the dogs can fit in. So it's, it's sort of like, uh, um, a box that um, that you would have for for you know like a camper trailer, but uh, we we make individual little sections for the sled dogs. So when you're going to racing or races, all of your all of the dogs go in their individual little slots in the box, and then you're you're um, taking them from from your your home kennel to wherever the race is, and and then of course you you need to get them out of the truck and then onto the line as I mentioned on how the teams are set up. And then if you go to the starting line, just like in any other distance type race, whether you're doing the local 5k or an ultra marathon, you have a starting point and a finishing point and uh, you jump on the back of the sled and you're on the trail. 
Now, are the uh, routes usually one way? I'm glad you brought braces again because there's uh, out and back, there are loops, and then there's uh, start and finish, you know, end to end. Yeah, and, and again, it really depends on the race. As I mentioned, Iditarod goes from Anchorage to Nome, Alaska, so that's a one-way trip. Uh, the more uh, mid-distance or shorter-distance races are typically loops, so you'll go out. Very commonly, I'll run a 150- a or 200-mile race, so we're going out about 100 miles to to a checkpoint, and then we'll uh, turn around and come back the same way we're going, or we'll just do a, a very large route, depending on, on where we're racing, where we're going from checkpoint to checkpoint to checkpoint from start to finish. How frequently are you racing? You know, in the past, I've done quite a bit of racing. Uh, this year, I only did one race because we were training for an expedition. But there's been years where I've ran three or four races in a year. And some years, if I've done sprint racing, I, I'm racing every weekend. Do you need to rest the dogs between races depending on the distance? You know, it, it really depends on the dogs. Dogs are really quick to recover. Uh, most of our dogs are running on equal run-rest schedules in races. So if we're running for six or eight hours, they're getting that six or eight-hour rest in the you know in between. Uh, then if we're running sprint races, of course, as we mentioned, uh, you're just running on the weekends. So we may do a couple of short training runs. Uh, you know, during the week, and then we're we're racing on the weekends. It really just depends on what we're doing in the season. And I I, I will say that uh, with my type of dogs now, they are not built for sprint races. They aren't those lean, lanky, fast dogs. That's as I talked about. These are the more uh, huskier, stronger, slow plotting dogs, but it's great to get out there and race. And, and I know you, you said you're an ultra racer. Uh, I'm sure. No, you, no, no, no. Oh, you're I've not. Done 150k. Oh, you've done I do a, marathons. Okay, that's not ultra. But you know what I'm saying. It, it, it's fun to to do a marathon, but it's also fun to go out there and do a 5k every now and then as well. And that's sort of what we do with with I our dog. Case hurt. <laughs> do they? Yes. But you know what I'm saying. You you go out and yeah, do a okay. short run just for fun, whereas whereas the uh, you know the big race is sort of there lurking in the in in, in the midst. Well, they yeah. You know, to draw a weird comparison, but five Ks hurt because essentially you go out as hard as you can and hold on for dear life. So it's just pain. That's that sounds like Whereas dog mush. Ha- right, but they've got to recover and feel good. Right. Um, the dogs, I hope, are happy. Oh yeah, you know, you know, there's a lot of talk out there. You know, do the dogs want to run? Do they do they enjoy it? You know, is it abuse to the dogs? You know, we we could go down that rabbit hole if you like, but you know, these dogs were these dogs were these dogs were born to run. That's what they were bred to do. This isn't your you know your couch potato dog that uh, you know barely plods over to to the water bowl for for a drink of water. These guys want to go all the time, and it's an you know it's its own breed of dog you know you, just like you, you talked about horse racing uh, there's a, a big difference between a race horse and just sort of that uh, that field horse that you go out and you know put a saddle on on, on saturdays and you know go out, go on a ride down the trail as a matter of fact correct me if i'm wrong some of the dogs especially the really tightly bred and trained it's abuse to put them in an apartment 
Yes, you know, uh, we do place some of our dogs occasionally uh, when they're done and they're retired and they, you know, sort of, you know, live out their days sort of lounging around. But most of these guys do not want to be in the house. Uh, we, we you know, if, if a dog is sick or injured or whatever, and, you know, we want to bring them up and make them comfortable, they will... They won't have it. They're, they they just want to be outside with their buddies, and so they'll they'll pace and pant and you know stand at the door. It's like saying, "Hey, I don't want to be in here. This isn't where I belong. I want to be out with my pack of buddies." Now, also, correct me if I'm wrong. They're not always great with little kids. You know, ours are, and I can't speak for all the sled dogs out there. You know, it, it's like any other dog, how well you socialize them when they're pups. And we have so many people coming to visit our dogs. We do a lot of uh, meet and greets with our dogs. So they're they're growing up around hanging out with people. So it's, it's a different type of world than, you know, somebody that lives out uh, off the road system here in Alaska and very, very rarely sees other people other than their own family. Uh, I would imagine those dogs would be a heck of a lot socialized, less socialized than a dog that uh, receives as much attention as as a dog kennel like ours. But would it be fair to say that you have to train them in a more focused manner than, say, a black lab? Oh, of course. You know, it's a different type of dog. Whereas, same thing could be said with a with a German Shepherd. It has that sure. entirely different drive than sort of your, uh, you know, slobbery, I want to be with you every minute, uh, Labrador retriever type trait. Okay. I just wanted to point that out because I remember, you know, everybody worries, worries about pit bulls. Right. And that's fine. But the number one biter for many years was Dal- Dalmatians. Right. Dogs that you would never think of, Dalmatians and poodles and, you know, um Pekingese and, you know, smaller type dogs. Those are the ones that are, that are often... Uh, the ones that are sort of the culprits for the bites, and, and it's 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 almost always Eric because of breeding. Uh, very rarely is it because of uh, you know uh, you know they don't like people or or whatever. It's almost always a genetic or a behavior issue that's causing that bite. Versus you know oh my god it's it's a pit bull or oh my goodness it's a a dalmatian or whatever. You can pigeonhole pigeonhole everything, but you you know you could do that for just about anything. I think. But that's troubling, though, if it's breeding, because that means it's hard to overcome. It is. And, it, you know, that's 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 a big problem in this country. There's there's millions of dogs that are bred every year by people that have absolutely no idea what they're doing. We call them backyard breeders. You know, they 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 have a Labrador and their neighbor has a Labrador and they say, hey, let's have some puppies. We'll make a whole bunch of money. And, you know, the next thing you know, Max and, and Lucy are together and they have a batch of puppies and. You know, they're selling them in the parking lot of Walmart for 50 bucks. And now you have, uh, you know, not only two probably ill-bred uh, backyard dogs, but now you have a whole kennel of or litter of dogs that you've just sold at Walmart for, for 50 bucks that will probably not get any socialization anyway. So then you have, you know, eight or 10 dogs that, uh, that are just sort of perpetuating the problem. What do you recommend for people who let's say go to a shelter to pull one off the street versus create another, but is ill-bred. How do you handle that? Do your homework. Get out and visit those dogs. See how well they are adjusted to, to you and how well they are adjusted to your family. If the if the shelter allows you to take take that dog home for the weekend to, to hang out with you and, and see if they, you know, you guys get along well. Is it, is it going to be a good fit for your family? I have no problems with uh, with rescuing dogs from shelters. 
but go into it with an educated mind. Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Are you getting a dog on on sort of the spur of the moment, or is this something that you're that you're planning on doing for for a long time? You know, is this something that you're going to yeah, a dog that you're going to take camping or or running, as you mentioned, or is it going to be uh, a hunting companion or whatever you're going to do? You know, have a long term plan with this dog, just not ooh, this is uh, you know, as they always say, you know, the cute puppy in the window. Uh, there's there's nothing worse than than buying a puppy without any uh, education behind it. Is there a way to overcome it though? Let's say you say, okay, this is not a a well socialized dog. Can they be trained? Of course, they can be trained. Now, what you know, you're already behind the eight ball. You have for if if the dog is in the shelter, you you don't necessarily know why it got there. You know, was it was it placed there because it had behavior problems would did the person just say i don't want this dog anymore and then you have to ask yourself why did they not want this dog anymore did it bite the kid or you know did it soil the furniture or what did it do uh, there's a reason why the dog ended up in the shelter in the first place so can you train it of course you can but you're sort of already behind the eight ball because you don't know its history especially if it's an older dog you know is that uh sort of the, the frequent flyer of, of of a shelter is it in and out in and out in and out and why is it going in and out of the shelter has it been there two or three times because every time it's adopted uh it, you know it, again it it, it uh is uh rough with the kids or doesn't get along well with um you know an apartment and tears up your apartment or whatever you have it's just something you need to do your homework about and what do you recommend somebody does to start first off if you if you have done your homework and and you find that that this is the dog i want to have i would do anything in my power to get him as him or her as socialized as possible. So take him to uh, group classes with your, with your local dog training club. Those are relatively cheap. You can do them at places like Petco or PetSmart or something like that. They have really inexpensive group classes where it's built on socialization necessarily versus commands. So you're going to get a lot of group attention with that. And if the dog does well, then go into a little bit more advanced obedience. So maybe take some private lessons with a dog trainer. And then maybe you find a sport that you enjoy together. As we mentioned, whether it's agility or dock diving or fly ball or whatever, get involved with uh, with the sport with your dog. Then you have a buddy for life. So is that the bottom line is the communication and playing with them or being with them socialization oh i think so for sure i think if they uh if they have a job to do and they know that they're going to get that communication with 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 their owner if that's just a single person in the house or you know a multi-person household if they have that bond and that that ability to communicate back and forth and everybody sort of has a routine and a job i think that's the uh the win-win world in the dog now, do you get into the whole philosophy of you need to be the alpha and the dog just got to accept you as an alpha and all that um, psychology? You know, I've done that in the past. Uh, that was the big thing in the early 2000s. If you remember, there was all sorts of TV shows on with Caesar Milan and, you know, Victoria Stilwell was on Animal Planet and all these dog centric shows. And how can I fix my dog in a half an hour? And man, we, we were struggling to, to keep up with that demand from everybody wanting what they saw on TV. And at the time, uh, that that sort of pack mentality was the way to go. It was sort of the the fad in dog training at that time. 
and it worked well. But uh, you know, if you're if you're constantly struggling with that uh, with that alpha syndrome or, or or whatever, it typically doesn't work in human families. Whether you know you got your you know your overbearing dad, and you know you, you got your meek mom, and then you have your trying to be obedient kids. It, you know it doesn't work there, so it probably doesn't work in a dog household as well. So, what do you recommend now? Uh, again, it's that that balanced approach. Just making sure that uh, that whatever your goal is to accomplish, is there going to be a a recognizable award, reward, and 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 punishment? And again, punishment doesn't mean punishment like a, a spanking or something like you would think about with a child. It's taking away that uh, uh, reward or that uh, that reinforcer. Okay, so it's not an action; it's a withholding. Yes. Okay, so it's either love or less love. Uh, it could be thought that way. A lot of people say uh, attention or not attention. So if the dog is doing something, so let's say it does sit and you give it attention of some sort, and we talked a little bit about this before. So if the dog sits mm-hmm. and you give him praise, that is an acceptable behavior. If you teach the dog sit and he does not sit and you do not praise, that would be a, a negative reinforcer. So that would be the opposite of praise. And as you mentioned, love versus not love, it, it, you know, it just really depends on how, how you look at the human dog relationship. Now you mentioned the rewards. Um, is it a good idea to mix it up because you don't want to always have a pocket full of treats or fatten your dog, do you? Right. Yeah. We we use more than anything. We use praise over treats, and there are dog trainers out there that uh, that are totally treat motivated. So every time the dog does something, they're getting a, a treat of some kind, whether it's a piece of kibble or piece of hot dog or cheese or whatever you're using but just like in our own life and i've i've told many clients over the over the years this is if you got ice cream every day that ice cream uh that ice cream cone or that ice cream sundae would not be a treat it would just be something that you get every day another analogy i use is every day can't be thanksgiving so you know if you had turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce every day for 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 dinner it would near be the treat that it is on that uh, third or fourth Thursday of of November. That's, you know, it makes it special. So the way we approach treats or positive reinforcement with treats is it has to be worth something. And I think that that's where uh, those analogies between ice cream and turkey dinners come into play. Because your ultimate goal is for the dog to internalize. Right. And, And to understand that if you say something, they're expected to respond to it. And I'm guessing over time, they just naturally will do it more. That's they get comfortable with the pattern. That, that's that's why we have dogs. And you, you mentioned wolves earlier. You know, why do wolves not make well uh, suited for, for dog sledding or any other thing? We domesticated dogs because their willingness to please for us or, or to work for us or to be our companions. And that's why they became domesticated dogs, because they showed that ability that they want to do something to be part of our pack. Very cool. Now I'm going to go back to the uh, races. Yes. I have a series of questions. How do you keep warm? Great question. Uh, there, there's, um, there's right ways to go behind it or beside it and wrong ways to go beside it. There, there's all sorts of different gear out there, uh, ranging in price from, you know, a couple hundred dollars to a thousand dollar winter parka. Uh, I travel a little bit warm, so I don't wear near the gear that other people wear. 
but I guess I would probably wear maybe 10 pounds of gear out on the trail at 30 below, whereas some people would wear, you know, they're bundled up looking like, uh, you know, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. What about the dogs? The dogs, they, they have their own way of, of keeping warm. you got to remember, they're running down the trail, and they're processing a heck of a lot of energy as they're doing it. Uh, the shorter coated, coated dogs are uh, commonly wearing coats of some sort. Typically, it's a nylon-type coat with some type of fleece backing. Uh, and um, some dogs uh, uh, wear uh, protectors for their private parts if it's really cold out, and that's typically some type of fur uh, down in those in those regions, but our dogs are are that uh, that that husky looking type dogs, so they have uh, quite a bit of thicker thicker fur com- fur compared to those shorter haired dogs, so they don't have near the problems keeping warm as those shorter coat dogs do. What about when they're resting overnight? When they're resting, we we put them down on a bed of straw, so every dog will get a plat of straw. So if folks are are familiar with how a bale of straw is set up, they come in little sections. So we give each dog one of those little sections of straw on the the line as as they're resting, and uh, they will rest on that, and they fluff that up to make a bed out of it. And then uh, at home here, every dog has a house that is... um, packed full of straw the way that we do it is every time it goes down 10 degrees we give them more straw so you know we start giving dogs straw at 40 degrees we'll give them more straw at 30 more straw at 20 more straw zero etc etc so each winter that that house is building up with more and more layers of straw now you said on the line so are they still hitched to the cart when they're um, sleeping yeah when they're hitched to the sled at races uh, the dogs are, are are hooked up pretty much from start to finish so when you come into a checkpoint or a rest stop uh, you have a whole process that you do one of those first processes is to bed down your dogs and that's where you're doing it with uh, with your straw. Now, is that all on the sled? Uh, depends. Again, depends on the race. So most of the time, the the straw is provided by the race organization. Or if you're if you're out on your own on a camping trip or whatever, that would be something you would carry. Okay, um, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Now, on the sled, they typically there's typically a bunch of stuff. What is that? Food? What? Yes, typically, and again, racing is different different than expeditions or camping or whatever, so that's an entirely different type of travel. But in a race situation, you're carrying whatever you need to get from checkpoint A to checkpoint B. So that may be food, that may be straw, that may be um, snacks for your dogs. We use salmon snacks for ours. It's very similar to what you get in a restaurant, a, a salmon steak. Um, and then we carry uh, some mandatory gear like an axe and a cooker that, that boils water to heat the, the, the water for the dogs. We carry a sleeping bag and booties for the dogs and, and uh, you know, other, other types of things that we may need on the trail, like snowshoes and that sort of thing. Okay, that answered another question partially. I was wondering what you fed them, and this is reaching back to racehorses. Before the race, they would be fed grain which is a very high carb and it would amp them up, you know, the sugar. Right. What do you do with the dogs? We have a, a very high powerful kibble. Like you, like you talked about with, uh, with the, the racehorses, very high, high protein, high fat 
type kibble, different than, you know, the, the dog food you'd buy at the local supermarket. And then we add raw meat to, to our diet. So each day we are feeding approximately 40 pounds of raw meat and about 20 pounds of kibble. And then we mix that with water uh, to, to form like the consistency of, of like a, a hearty beef stew. And then we feed twice a day that type of, of, of meal. And then as we're racing, we're adding fat and supplements and, and uh, fish and other things to really amp up the calories. Uh, sort of a good rule of thumb in long-distance races is you're feeding about 10,000 calories per day for a sled dog. Okay, now all of that you pack with you on the cart because you're on your own, right? Uh, typically, yes. Uh, either you're packing it with you or it gets sent out to those different checkpoints along the way. Typically, in a in a longer race, uh, there are, um, whether it's, it's traveling by snow machine or snowmobile, out to the different checkpoints. Or sometimes it's even flown out to you and you have what's called a drop bag. And in that drop bag will be all of your food that you would need at that checkpoint and up to the next. And then all of those snacks or whatever. It's, it's kind of in a big... Uh, very similar to how the uh, burlap feed sack is, but these are, are more of a uh, sort of the same size, just different material. Are there rules? Of course there are rules. Uh, and, and there's rules from everything to to uh, to doping dogs with, with all uh, sorts of things. Yeah, with, I mean, things like uh, antacids are illegal and, and um, you know, steroids and all that sort of stuff. It's a pretty big deal for... For, um, for 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 doping and you know you, there's pretty big sanctions and there's of course rules like there are in every other race there's got to be sportsmanship rules and rules of the trail and you know how much rest you have to have and you know what gear you're supposed to carry it in the sled and you know there of course there are penalties as well are there you know time penalties or disqualification penalties or or whatever is doping a problem uh, you know, it's it's becoming a problem, and I think because there was a big case from from it just a, a couple of years ago. But you know, it's not something that I don't I don't think is as prevalent as as they make it out to be. But uh, there was a pretty big issue of of an illegal substance in in Iditarod two years ago, and now of course it's in it's it's sort of in the forefront. So, do they test throughout the season? Do you have dogs that are noted ahead of time, like, this will be my 16 dogs? Yes. And they're checked throughout the season? Uh, and not throughout the season. It, it, most likely, they're they're tested at the races. So they, they do um, urinalysis testing on dogs. Uh, typically, they'll do uh, a random sample at the start, and then they're doing some random sampling uh, throughout the throughout the race, so at different checkpoints, and then Iditarod, they uh, I believe, and and I'm not a Iditarod musher, but I believe that they that they test the first ten or first twenty dogs that that finish, so they all of those dogs are tested as well, and that's where that positive test came up uh, a couple of years ago. I hate to say it, then doping can be a huge problem. It can be, yeah, and I know in sprint racing, and in particular in Europe, uh, it's it's a big deal. They have they have something very similar to what they have in the Olympics. They have a whole committee that uh, that takes care of that, and if you have an international race, they have independent um, you know independent boards. So, like you have somebody from Japan coming over to a race from you know a race in Sweden, and you have somebody from Germany that that's on the board that comes over to a race in Sweden and. And all of those people are sort of that uh, anti-doping uh, 
panel or whatever it's called, uh, you know, very similar to the Olympics. There's a problem with that, though. I think there is. I They're think they only testing during the race. As far as I know, and again, I'm not a, a, a big time uh, long distance musher, but from my understanding, it's it's more random than it is than it would be like like in human athletes. Right. That, the problem with the doping and what I'm where I'm going down this path is steroids. The main purpose for them is healing. So you dope away while they're training so they can heal up better and get stronger. And then they cut the dope out before the race. So they'll test clean. So if they're not tested during the training season, then doping can be a huge issue. Oh, I agree with you. And, and, you know, I think aside from, I think there's more abuse with other types of medications and drugs than there are with like anabolic steroids. I think that um, there are, uh, for example, in, in the Iditarod a couple of years ago, the dog was tested positive for a pain reliever, like uh, a pretty ho- high profile uh, narcotic type type drug. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know, like, like, like they give you at the dentist. I can't think of the name. Right or something. Yeah. Something like that. But you know, the dog, the dog equivalent of that, whatever that is called. And the dog po- tested positive for that. Uh, and, and they said, well, you know, if he gave that drug, you know, in the last third of the race, it's going to allow that dog to perform better because they aren't as sore as a dog that, that did not have that medication. And that's I would have an issue for another way. If you, drug the dog and work the dog you can harm the dog oh i agree and and that's what they're trying to avoid uh and that's uh, you should you you should see that the list of medications and and uh supplements and things that that are not allowed i mean something is as benign as uh those essential oils that are very popular today most of those are on the banned substance list uh, for whatever reason, you know, I, I don't use those myself, but I can imagine that, you know, many people use those today for, for calming and, you know, stress relief or whatever. And they found that sure. uh, most of those dogs or most of those drugs are, are now on the banned substance list as well. So to pivot from that, how do you cope with injuries? You know, our dogs have a remarkable way of recovering themselves. We don't, uh, and this is something that I tell people all the time as well, especially my dog training clients. You you know, you constantly see somebody taking their dog to the vet for one thing or another. Oh, my dog didn't eat today or, you know, he had diarrhea or whatever. So I need to take him to the vet. Our dog, what's that? I mean, during the race. Oh, during the race. Uh, first off, you, you do a heck of a lot of massaging. You do a lot of uh, foot repair out on on the race. Uh, I would imagine very similar to how you take care of yourself on, on a marathon or whatever. You, you know, you're inhibiting blisters and that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of muscle rubs, a lot of that sort of thing to, to make sure that that they're very well taken care of in that way. And then, of course, just a lot of a good downtime and recovery helps out a lot with, with sore muscles and sore joints. In the middle of the race, though, yeah. you have a dog, it's hurt. There, what do you do? Uh, there are rules for that. Uh, there is um, a, a vet team at every checkpoint. So if a dog is sick or injured, there are rules in place that that uh, that give the vet the the ability to say that you're going to drop that dog. And that's a very common practice in long distance mushing, where you may start with 16, but you may only finish with six or eight 
because either you've you've dropped them for not performing or for them being sore or injured, but you've also dropped them for for just uh, you know it's not their their job to finish the entire race. Their their job is to get you through the first third. So you you set your team up so that the dog will be dropped, and that's part of a strategy of a race. You mentioned how do you take care of sick or injured dogs. Uh, our sort of rule of thumb is if a dog is uh, is injured and unable to perform, especially if it's happening on the race or on the trail, we drop them immediately at the checkpoint. And and if you don't drop them at the checkpoint, uh, let's say it happens in the middle of, of, of the race in between checkpoint A and checkpoint B, uh, a, a required piece of uh, gear is a dog bed on a dog bag on the sled. And that is required because you have to be able to transport that dog from point A to point B safely and successfully. You, you, know, you just can't tie him to the top of it and hope to get there in one piece. Okay. So they'll ride the sled with you. Right. Okay, cool. That's interesting to know. Now, what happens if you get stuck or have an equipment break? That's that's racing, you know. That's that's part of the deal. You got to make sure that uh, that you take care of your stuff, you take care of your equipment. You know, we we've I, on many occasions I've had broken pieces on sleds where I've you know hit roots in in the trail or slammed into a tree or whatever, and you just sort of limp into to the next checkpoint and you do your best to repair it and. You know, the race rules will dictate, are you allowed to have a replacement sled or are you not? Mm-hmm. You know, do you have to, do you have to uh, scratch or withdraw because you're, you know, you're busted up uh, and you mentioned uh, getting lost or, or, or something. I don't how know how many, navigating? yeah, you know, a lot of times it's, it's very well marked, but again, if you're out uh, doing something other than racing, there may not be a marked trail at all. So you have to have uh, the ability to, to know where you're going or whether you're using GPS or, or whatever. Is but, GPS allowed? Uh, on racing, it's becoming allowed. I know it's now allowed on Iditarod and Yukon Quest, and that's a recent um, a recent rule change where they allowed that. Uh, in, in many years before, you you were not allowed any type of outside communication, and that did include GPSs. So the trail's that's pretty well question. marked. What's that? How do you communicate? Uh, you do not communicate uh, unless you're you're at the checkpoint, and if you can communicate with each other, you know the competitors. But up until just a couple years ago or so, there was no outside communication allowed whatsoever because that gives you an advantage. If you're you know in, in second place and you call ahead to your team and you say you know hey John where's uh, where's Bob and you say oh well you know Bob is race, uh, resting at checkpoint. You know, number three, and then you say, okay, well, I'm not going to rest there because Bob is resting. You know, that gives you an advantage. Are there marshals on the course, though? And the reason why I ask about communication is these are deadly cold conditions, correct? Yes. Yeah, there are. There is a race marshal. Every race has a race marshal, and they oversee the entire race, and they have a whole bevy of people that are under them, so they will have judges and checkers. And, you know, if you're thinking about, like, a marathon, those will be the people that are at the – at the um what do they call them the places where where you can stop uh checkpoints, uh, checkpoints. Or, or, or a water station water station or whatever very similar to that you'll have people roaming the whole course yes not necessarily on the course itself or on the trail itself but in the checkpoints uh in particular on most long distance races you carry an emergency beacon and okay. they know where you're at at all times so it's very similar to a, what they call a sport tracker or a spot tracker uh, that is a GPS sort of sending unit, so they know where everybody's at. And then, of course, if something 
disastrous happens, you can press that button, and then that that pretty much sends the cavalry out. So they send out the okay. you know the but whole you have yeah an escape sure. an escape proof yes, and that's an immediate disqualification if you do press that button. Is that a disqualification or it did not finish? They call DNF or whatever and running. I believe it's a withdrawal. Uh, they okay. have they have a scratch, whereas it's you know it's, it's voluntary. So if you come into a checkpoint and you say you know I'm just not performing well, I don't want to finish. That's a scratch. Where and then you have a withdrawal, which would be like if you press that button or if you broke a rule or whatever. And then you have a disqualification if you know if it's of course much much major. So that would be like we talked about doping or cheating or whatever. Right. Okay. Well, you would hopefully be banned from races for a bit or something. And that's typical. You know, typically it's it's a, a you know, a, a year ban or whatever. You know, it depends on the on the uh, on the infraction. Well, cool. Now, I have one more question. Somebody asked me, are the 10th special and how do you hint, heat them? Sorry. Uh, what was the first part of that? Are the 10th special? You know, on on long distance mushing, we do not use tents. Uh, I will often be found laying right next to my dogs in the straw, and I will get out my sleeping bag and sleep right there beside them. Uh, on camping trips, we do take out um, we call them Arctic oven type tents, and those are tents that have stoves inside of them, and then you can feed them whatever you're going to use for fuel, whether it be. Uh, you know, wood or, or pellets or, or propane or whatever you're using for that. And those can get pretty toasty. Uh, but we don't use those nearly as much as, as most people think. Now, is that because it's so cold that it's going to be snow, you won't get rained on? You know, in a race, you're you're not trying to do much rest. You know, one of the things that uh, that happens on Iditarod and other long distance type racing is, is sleep deprivation. Those folks can go four or five days without very much sleep at all. So their goal is to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. They're not setting it up like a camping trip. So they're doing whatever they have to do to get from, you know, from, from start to finish as fast as possible. Of course, it's a race. Uh, but on a, on a camping trip, you're a little bit more leisurely, so you can take your time. You can, you can set up camp and, you know, have, have a grill and all these other sorts of things, whatever you're trying to do. It really just depends on what you're doing with your dogs. Very cool. Now, what did I forget to ask you? Boy, I tell you what, I think we covered a heck of a lot of uh, sort of the different types of of dog mushing. We talked about sprint racing. We talked about mid-distance and long-distance. And, of course, we talked about uh, uh, sort of expedition or camping-type trips as well. So what's next for Robert Fordo? Other than a new degree, well, that that's a that's a great question. Uh, I went back to school for a second degree about four years ago. I graduated uh, May sixth, so just a a couple of weeks ago with my second degree. It was an outdoor leadership degree, and coming up this Sunday, uh, my classmates and I are heading out for a three week backpacking and pack rafting trip in the Wrangell St. Elias National Park, which happens to be the largest national park in the United States. So we're heading out there on Sunday and uh, boy, that's going to be a heck of a trip in itself. Well, awesome. On that note, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on just about anywhere on social media. Just search for Robert Forto, F-O-R-T-O. And I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever. You can also find me over at robertforto.com. And we also do a podcast. It's dog-centric. 
And we do a show uh, about dog mushing on Wednesdays, and we do dog training shows interspersed throughout, and that's called Dog Works. Ra- excuse me, Dog Works Radio. Awesome! I will put those links in this episode. And thank you so much for filling us in this. You're welcome for sure. Thanks again. Thank you. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again.